Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Yorkshire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective and outside the Westminster bubble, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons and on this week's episode we'll be looking at Net Zero and the North. With the landmark UN Climate Change Summit coming up in Glasgow later this month and Boris Johnson unveiling a host of new policies to drive down climate warming emissions, our region has a big part to play in whether the UK reaches its targets of becoming carbon neutral by the year 2050. With the huge opportunities that come from the net zero agenda as well as the substantial costs, we're going to hear from both sides of the political divide about where we go next. On Teesside, the Tory MP for Redcar, Jacob Young, tells us about how his patch could see a jobs bonanza as it becomes one of the UK's main hubs for clean energy. Teesside, we led the world in uh, the Industrial Revolution, whether that was in our uh, steel industry or iron industries, these really heavy carbon intensive industries. And now we've got an opportunity to lead the world in, uh, in the Green Industrial Revolution. And in Sheffield, the Labour MP Olivia Blake argues that decisions on how we cut emissions can't just be left to the political parties to argue about, which is why people in her constituency have taken it upon themselves to come up with their own vision to tackle climate change. We really wanted to make sure that um, the voices of people in Hallam constituency would, would be heard through the COP26 process because it's such an important global meeting but obviously the consequences will have huge ramifications to right down to the local level. But before we get into that we've got a few minutes to reveal the results of the Northern Agenda's big levelling up survey taking the temperature in our region on Boris Johnson's flagship domestic policy and what people in the north think it actually means. A few days ago we published a survey on our website asking people for their view on questions like which area of levelling up was most important, when, if ever, did they expect it to yield results, and perhaps crucially, do they even understand what it means? We've had more than a thousand responses from around the region, and there are some fascinating findings in there. So let's discuss them with Dan O'Donoghue, our Westminster editor. Hi there, Dan. Hey, Rob. Hello, and I'm very pleased to welcome Geraldine Scott, political correspondent from the Press Association, honorary Yorkshire woman from her time at the Yorkshire Post, and someone who's written more stories about levelling up than I've had hot dinners. Jerry, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rob. Thank you for having me. No problem at all. Looking at the results of this survey, it's quite a mixed picture, I think, in, in, in a lot of respects. Just to take you through some of the headline stats, we asked people, do you understand what Boris Johnson means when he talks about levelling up? 40% yes, 60% no. I think perhaps the most concerning element for the government, when do you expect the government's levelling up plans will lead to improvements in your area? Within a year, 3%. Before the next general election, 10%. Within a decade, 18%. And never a whopping 69%. And there is also a few interesting ones on what people thought was the most important priority for levelling up. Raising living standards in poorer places was 33%. And better railways, roads and public transport, 18%. And investing in skills and training, 14%. So quite a lot to digest there. Dan, what did you what did you make of it? Well, I think... Well, thankfully, I think it seems to ring true with a lot of what we already know that people acknowledge there's a problem but are kind of unclear on what Boris Johnson's solution is. I mean, I think part of that is to do with the overuse of the phrase. I mean, it seems every other day there's another announcement on levelling up to do with another policy that you never thought was part of this kind of whole bag. I mean, at Tory conference, one of the former one former ministers told a fringe event that that was kind of mainly due to the spending review coming up. I mean, every department 
is wanting a bit of extra cash and is trying to kind of push home that their strategy is going to help level up as well. I mean, we'll obviously know a bit more about that next week once the budget's announced. We'll kind of see where kind of the cards fall in terms of what are the true priorities for leveling up. I thought it was also interesting in the survey that a third of those who kind of were asked what kind of areas and policies they would like to see and, and how, how they would deliver this leveling up agenda, a third said that, you know, it'd be raising living standards in poorer places. That's something the Centre for Cities think tank kind of put a paper out on last week. And they kind of looked at the kind of reunification of Germany as an example, and they kind of broke down the figures and, and a lot of cash there was spent on kind of welfare to help raise living standards in the former East Germany. At the moment, you know, it, it would be fair to say that is Boris Johnson going to pursue that policy when, you know, we're seeing the £20 a week universal credit uplift being caught, you know, and various other reforms that potentially don't help in, in that sense. So it'll be interesting to see in the budget, you know, if there's any kind of moves to kind of try and increase or the living standards or, or help workers in some way to to kind of go towards that. But yeah, no, I think those are the two areas that certainly uh, caught my eye. Joey, the one thing, I guess the, the main thing that I took away from it is that 69% of the people who got back to our survey thought that levelling up will never lead to improvements in their area. So I, I guess that proves that there's still a lot of work to do if Boris Johnson is going to continue to hold on to these northern seats in the Red Wall in the next general election. He's still got quite a big persuasion job to do on the, the northern public. Well, that's the point, right? Both you and I as old colleagues, Rob, spent a lot of time during the 2019 election on the campaign trail in these Red Wall seats that the uh, Tories took off of Labour. And these voters, these people were promised that their lives would be tangibly different. Okay, maybe not straight away, but definitely by the time they were next at the ballot box. And this is a massive project, right? It's going to take a long time, but they were promised some changes. And this is the whole idea behind this levelling up fund. We've seen that things can be delivered before 2024 or 2023, if you believe some Labour MPs. But what the survey really shows is that people do think that levelling up is what we know it to be, that narrowing of regional inequalities in making sure that wherever you live in the country, you have the same opportunity. And there's been these countless examples of this slogan just attached to other things. I started kind of keeping a record of them because I started finding it quite hilarious. Leveling Up has been said that it will fix racial inequalities. And that was during all the Black Lives Matter protests, that levelling up would fix disability rights issues, that levelling up um, was even given by the Prime Minister's spokesman when he was um, when we asked if the Prime Minister was woke one day and levelling up somehow came up in that conversation. So there's all these things that levelling up is supposedly supposed to fix. But it's so obvious from your survey that voters think that it's all about closing those gaps in regional inequality. And I suppose the other thing that I picked out that I thought was really, really interesting was on the which party do you trust most to tackle regional inequalities? And uh, Labour had 41%, the Tories had 16%, and Neva had 43%. And I think that really shows not only is there a long way to go for people to understand what levelling up is, but also to actually believe it can be delivered. That's obviously, that challenge has been made bigger by COVID and various other things, but it's it's not looking great for confidence in the government being able to deliver this agenda that they've pinned their hopes on at the moment, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think that what we've been hearing, uh, I mean, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, Ben Houchen, the Metro Mayor of the Tees Valley, was talking about, uh, you know, whether Tees Valley is now a, a Conservative stronghold because of the gains that were made there uh, in, in recent years. And he said that that definitely 
wasn't the case and that at the next election those areas which went conservative in 2019 are still very much up for grabs and it's it, it you know it's it's not the case that there's been a huge turning of the tide but you know this is still very much all to play for another thing i thought was quite interesting is that you know we do know a little bit more now about what leveling up actually is uh, the leveling up minister neil o'brien who's obviously from from huddersfield he tweeted recently that leveling up is empowering local leaders and communities growing the private sector and boosting living standards, particularly where they're lower, spreading opportunity and improving public services, particularly where they're lacking, and restoring local pride. Now, I guess if you know the results of our survey are anything to go by, people get on board with the idea of raising living standards in poorer places. But I was in- interested to see that restoring local pride, only 3% of people put that as an important priority for levelling up and also regenerating town centres and high streets only at seven percent and i think the the argument goes is that these short-term short-term gains and these short-term projects in town centres making them look nicer giving people a bit more of a sense of pride about where they live according to sort of the conservative way of thinking that is going to win a lot of people over but in the short term and that will give them then permission to embark on these longer projects. But I guess maybe what we're learning from this survey is that people really want them to focus on the big systemic inequalities that have been holding the North back for, for so long and the sort of bit of paint here and there on a high street isn't isn't really gonna gonna cut it. No, I mean, I, I think definitely, Rob, and I think, you know, we've come out the back end of just over a decade of, of really hard times. And, you know, we've come, come through a really, you know, terrible period for a lot of people through the last you know, through the pandemic and some of the language I think that was being used, particularly at Tory conference around, I think Michael Gove likened it to a, a new incoming head teacher at a, head, a poor and failing school and having to give it a new lick of paint and that changes everyone's mindset. You know, I think when you've had a lot of local services really battered over the last 10 years, then it'll take, as you say, a bit more than a new lick of paint. And I think all eyes really will and should be on the budget next week to see where some of this cash is actually going to going to go there's no point is there in doing up the high street and filling it with fancy shops if no one's got good enough jobs where they feel like they can spend any money i mean you've got to raise those those living standards first and i think it's also about kind of reframing what people's priorities are on wednesday the business secretary was on lbc and they were talking about this government net zero strategy which you know we know could be absolutely massive for a lot of places in the north and have a lot of opportunity for people to have really not to sound too much like the prime minister but high skilled high paid jobs and nick ferrari on lbc's response was is this what red wall voters really want to see and i just think there's still that patronizing attitude but raising living standards is all tied up in that in that kind of thing and making sure people have better opportunities where they already live isn't it so you can read more about the findings of the survey in the northern agenda newsletter which you can get delivered into your inbox if you go to www.thenorthernagenda.co.uk so thank you to joey and to dan and now let's move on to the main business of the podcast which is net zero and the north In just a few days' time, some 25,000 world leaders, negotiators and journalists are going to descend on Glasgow for the UN Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26, an event that could well lead to major changes to our everyday lives in the north of England. 
The Global Summit, seen as crucial if climate change is to be brought under control, will see world leaders discuss their plans to cut emissions by 2030 in a bid to avoid the global warming that could bring about a climate catastrophe. As we take a look at what this might mean for our region, let's set the scene first by talking to Dr. Annette Bramley, who is director of the N8 Research Partnership, a collaboration of the eight most research-intensive universities in the north of England. Annette, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. No problem at all. Now, the universities represented in the N8, so the likes of Durham, Lancaster, Liverpool and York, amongst others, are working on research and innovation to tackle some real-world climate change challenges. But you wrote a piece quite recently setting out the need for action, which paints quite a stark picture of what's currently being done versus what needs to be done. Can you just take us through the main points of that? Yeah, so I think the key point is that by 2035, the UK needs to reduce its emissions of greenhouse gases by more than three quarters, by more than 75%. That's just about just over 10 years it's, it's just over a decade and really we're not seeing the kind of actions that we need at a policy and legislative level across the UK to make those kinds of reductions possible and to make green choices really accessible for the majority of the UK population. I was quite interested in in your article that you were talking about the, I I guess just to boil it down, the fact that the consequences of climate change just aren't being spoken about in the terms that they need to be. I think there was a really interesting quote that you got from somewhere saying that on TV, UK TV last year, the words banana bread were heard 10 times more often than wind power and solar power combined, which I assume is something to do with Great British Bake Off being on our screens a lot or something like that. But I mean, that's that's quite striking, isn't it? Yes, I think, you know, the pandemic and the banana bread baking bonanza, if you like, um, obviously led to that. But I think given the enormity of the problems facing us and the fact that wind power and solar power are quite well-known technologies, they're not kind of out there in the way that maybe kind of heat pumps or, or hydrogen technologies are. I think the other thing that that report found, there was a focus on individuals and what individuals can do. So recycling, single-use plastics, things like that. And that's much more frequently featured in the media. But actually, the things that are really going to have an impact on greenhouse gas emissions are energy generation and, and our transport. The BAFTA report says you know, something like uh, there's a link between the impact of the emissions, a low rate of mentions for businesses and sectors that emit more are mentioned less in in the media. And it might just be that that seems kind of a step away from, you know, the lives of the public. I I think we need to bring the consequences home to people, but I don't think it's all a really bad news story either. I think there's lots that we can do And there are really positive messages to go alongside a conversion to a greener economy. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, if you were in a position where you're trying to sell some of these measures to the public in terms of, you know, positive ways that it could impact their life, what things do you think we ought to be we ought to be talking about? Yeah, so the government today has published heating and homes strategy, I think it's called or or something similar to that, you know, insulating our homes and letting less heat leak out through our our walls and windows and heating our homes more efficiently can lead to many benefits. It makes our homes 
nicer places to live in it can have real positive health benefits because people living in damp homes you know have lots of respiratory and other health issues it can reduce our our heating bills and at the same time it can contribute to lowering greenhouse gas emissions while creating lots of jobs for people you know who may have been made out of work because of the uh, pandemic there's an absolutely massive growing sector in, in the low carbon goods products and services sector that people can get into and have long-term secure jobs you wrote your piece not long before party conferences and so obviously the gatherings of the labor and conservative parties and you were talking about how you wanted to see some sign that action was being taken now that conference season is passed is there much were there many grounds for optimism in what you you saw and heard there there are some good signs and the government has made some significant investments in low carbon technologies and particularly the north if you think about the recent announcements at Teesside but also a big announcement today about hydrogen at at high net in the northwest so there, so there are calls for optimism, but there was particularly from the Conservative Party conference, you know, a, a lack of real significant policy announcements. And I think we have to wait for the comprehensive spending review later in the autumn to see what that's really going to deliver for the country. I think the reports of the discord, I think, probably is the best way to put it between number 10 and number 11 in respect of climate change and how much it's going to cost is a real issue. And although the country does have financial issues coming out of the pandemic, we need to look to the costs that climate change will bring to all of us if we don't look to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and adapt and mitigate some of the impacts of climate change, because those costs might seem like a long way down the line, but they can be huge, both financially and emotionally, if if your home gets flooded, for example, which, you know, in the north of England is, you know, a regular occurrence for some parts, part of the north weather, you know, most most winters. So, you know, these costs are, are also real and need to be taken into account, as well as, as the costs of, of investing in low carbon technologies. Now, let's talk a bit about what's going on in the universities that the N8 partnership represents. There's the Net Zero North initiative. Tell us a bit about that and how will that contribute to the country's net zero aims? Yeah, so I think, first of all, I'd sort of say about why why would you choose the north of England to invest in in net zero technologies? And, And some of the reasons for that is there are clear strengths in the north of England. There are 31 universities, including eight eight of the N8, which have facilities and research programmes already going on, which relate to um, net zero. So we'd be building on strengths of the region. And we already in the north of England have around a third of jobs in the low carbon goods and services sector. But we also have over 70% of all England's wetlands, moorlands and heathlands as natural grasslands, which we can work with to absorb carbon from the atmosphere and use for biodiversity. There are other reasons why the North is is a great place to invest. So we've got a lot of heavy heavy industry that needs to decarbonise and some local authorities have more than a quarter of their jobs in high emissions industry. So there's a real opportunity to deliver skills into the workforce. And so VNA universities are working with other universities across the North to put together a programme of skills and research and innovation to really grow this market 
and grow the technologies for net zero and then and it makes sure that their skills are there in the region for businesses and so that they can adopt these technologies as quickly as possible. And what needs to happen to make your vision, your ambitions for the Net Zero North initiative a, a reality? Well, obviously, it's going to take some money. And that's, you know, we're really asking the Chancellor Rishi Sunak to invest in Net Zero North as a package at the Comprehensive Spending Review, because by investing in it as a whole package, we will be able to move forward with the skills, research and innovation in, in a sustainable hydrogen economy and in nature-based solutions, or what we call in Grow Smarter. And we can move that forward as a combined package and thereby get the innovation out and make change more quickly. We're hoping that he will invest in us, but there are other sources of funding that are available to universities and further education. And so we're going to be, you know, we're determined that this is an initiative which we will deliver um, and it will just be slower and the pace of change won't be as quick if we are scrabbling around for different sources of funding to to pull it together. But it's absolutely crucial. To put it into context, as Rishi Sunak considers his spending review, he, he there's lots of big money figures being touted about. I mean, how much how, how much would you need to to make make this idea work? Well, in an ideal world, um, we'd be looking for about just shy of two hundred million pounds to make a you know a huge impact for the region in terms of jobs and and also providing the research and innovation that the businesses of the region need to convert to low carbon goods, products and services. Many of those businesses don't have the capacity to do the research and innovation themselves. And and by investing in Net Zero North, there'll be a real hub for businesses right across the region. As you've said, we have universities from the Northwest through Yorkshire and right up into the Northeast. So there'll, there'll be expertise right across the region for businesses to tap into to achieve their own Net Zero ambitions. So it's an investment, really, that if it pays off properly, should pay handsome dividends a few years down the line. Return on investment figures show that if, if for every pound you invest in, in research innovation, you get at least six pounds back to the economy. So there's a rock solid case for investing in any research and innovation. As we've seen from the pandemic, investing in, in research ahead of time means that that when you hit a challenge you're you're better placed to to address it and what we're really saying to to the chancellor is you know invest in these low carbon goods products and services now so that we can start to address the future challenge or the actual challenge of, of climate change which is you know which is right ahead of us and is is one of the biggest challenges we're going to face well, we don't have long to wait to find out uh, whether Rishi Sunak has heeded those thoughts. Well, thank you very much for speaking to us, Dr. Annette Bramley of the NH Research Partnership. Thank you. Thank you. You can't talk about net zero without talking about Teesside. The region will play a crucial role in the UK's mission to decarbonise the economy and, all being well, the area is set to pave the way for the green jobs of the future. With me now to discuss all the green happenings in the North East is Redcar MP Jacob Young. Jacob, how's it going? Good afternoon, Dan. How are you? Yes, not too bad. So, just wondered for our listeners if you could just kind of spell out what's been going on in Teesside recently and what kind of investments are going on at the moment up, up in your region. The story of Teesside um, and this green turnaround that we've had, um, sort of, well, it goes back six years ago, uh, almost almost to the day uh, when we lost our steelworks. Um, and at the time I was working in uh, Teesside's chemical industry, 
I remember the day quite well because it was that um, harrowing feeling of who's next, you know, and, and for, for our industry, you know, was it going to be the chemical industry that was the next pillar to fall in industrial decline in Teesside? And it was a really dark day um, for us. But our story, I think, is, is quite like the phoenix rising out of the ashes um, and the um, ability to reposition ourselves in Teesside as this new centre for green energy. Um, it really, it started that day. Um, and so we've been on a journey over the last six years uh, where uh, slowly we've took control of um, the full uh, former steelworks site. Uh, and you'll remember in Parliament, we went through a huge campaign to try and get free port status for the site. That was successful. And we got that announcement in the budget um, earlier this year. Um, and then since then, we've been looking at trying to bring on these new investors uh, to, uh, to really kickstart that green industrial revolution in Teesside. And the way that I sort of look at it is, I, I say, you know, Teesside, we led the world in uh, the industrial revolution, whether that was in our uh, steel industry or iron industries, these really heavy carbon intensive industries. And now we've got an opportunity to lead the world in, uh, in the green industrial revolution. So we're looking at things like carbon capture and storage. We're looking at hydrogen. We've got GE's announced its new wind turbine blade manufacturing facility on the site. So it's really all aspects of the new green uh, future that we'll have. Uh, and these jobs are coming to, to Teesside. Tees Valley Mayor Ben Houchin has obviously played an instrumental role in, in a lot of this stuff. And I recall a fair few events at the Tory conference, he was speaking about how you kind of deliver for local communities. And he was saying it's very important that you make the big promises, but then people can actually see the delivery. I mean, there's been a lot of exciting figures and jobs numbers this week in particular. How long do you think it is before people actually see those jobs, you know, those jobs being advertised and, and that investment coming in? Well, I mean, jobs are being advertised on the site every day because we're going through remediation on the site at the moment and you know we inherited a site um, as I say the former steelworks um, there are huge elements of the steelworks that are still standing and you know some of the most iconic parts of the Redka skyline like the uh, the blast furnace it's still there it's not going to be there in uh, a couple of months time but it's still there for now um, and so I think that you know Dom and Long Tower when people saw Dom and Long Tower come down that was a that was a sign. It's a step forward of of uh, of what we were doing on the site. Um, it'll be the same when the blast furnace it, it comes down. It'll be the same when um, the the boss plant comes down um, because these are huge aspects of the site that people see every day. Um, and until they start sort of start to see that uh, these big structures coming down, um, I, I, you know I I'm conscious of the fact that you, they, they can't necessarily connect. Because unless you go on a tour of the site, you know, unless you, 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 you go around the site, you, you don't see these things um, from the roadside. Um, so I think that's part of it. Uh, but as I say, ultimately, we're remediating the site for these new industries to come. Um, and uh, the fantastic announcement that we had um, just this week on the East Coast, East Coast Cluster um, receiving track one status. So that means that net zero side, which is a power plant um, that catches the carbon emissions uh, and doesn't emit them into the atmosphere, is going to get the go ahead. Um, now, they've said that's 25,000 jobs across Teesside and Humberside. These aren't politicians' figures, that's industry's figures of what they're going to bring um, to our region. So um, 
I think that people will start to see uh, the jobs come in in the next few years. They're starting to see jobs in remediation already. But as soon as we start to um, unpick that skyline um, and as soon as the blast furnace comes down and the boss plant comes down, I think that's when people will will really feel the regeneration that's happening on that site. Just talking about net zero, I mean, there's been a bit of a, a back and forth and a row this week about kind of boilers and gas boilers. And there's things that we've heard time and time again about the cost of electric vehicles and, and all things like that. I mean, do you wonder, I'm just thinking now with maybe your levelling up cap on, is there any kind of friction between the ambition to get to net zero and levelling up? given that, you know, some of these things might cost a fair bit of money and might impact people in more deprived constituencies a little bit more, having to fork out a bit extra on whether it is a boiler or a new car or whatever it might be. Well, I, I don't think there is um, a friction. I, I, you know, if we if we don't do it right, certainly, yeah, they could, there could be a friction. Um, but uh, I think that I look at it and I see net zero as a huge opportunity for us in Teesside um, and, well, well across, across Yorkshire and the northeast. Um, because we have gone through this period of deindustrialization, um, and as I say, I, w- I speak from my own experience, having worked in the chemical industry, seeing uh, industry close around me, um, and thinking, you know, when 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 is my uh, when is my plant going to close? Um, but because of net zero, because of our commitments on carbon capture and storage, because of our promises on hydrogen and and um, you know new wind power etc we're creating the jobs of the future so for me that's exactly what leveling up is about creating these opportunities in places like teesside where they've seen uh deindustrialization for years uh, a switch away from manufacturing to more towards a service um led industry um and now we're we're we're, we're reversing that tide um and you know it's it's through the leadership of people like ben um, but but commitments on net zero is allowing us to do that, and yet you know I, I'm conscious of I'm conscious of costs, and and for me you know my campaigns in Parliament are all about making this energy transition amenable to to people because if we if we if we make it too expensive, people won't want to do it you know and and actually so there's, there is a balance to be struck between having um, having the the, the uh, green initiatives that we need people to buy into, uh, but making sure that they're affordable to people. And I've I've written about that previously as well. And finally, Jacob, can I just ask, there was a, probably a piece from home for you on the House of Commons menu today. There was a Teesside Palmo being served in the Terrace cafeteria, if I'm not wrong. Did you, uh, did you sample one at all? No, no. Well, I'm on a bit of a health kick at the moment, Dan. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I think a Palmo is best enjoyed at 11 o'clock after a few beers rather than uh, on a Wednesday afternoon. Um, but I would, I would say um, I, I saw it in the, uh, in the canteen uh, and it was, it was a sorry excuse for a parmore. I mean, there's barely any cheddar on there. I'm pretty sure it wasn't deep fried. It probably was on diet for me, actually. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and there was this green stuff next to it as well. I was like, what's all that about? You know, parmore comes with chips, it comes with garlic sauce. Um, and unfortunately, that's not what the House of Commons was offering today. So a thumbs down from Jacob Young. No, well, thank you very much for joining us today, Jacob. Thank you. Yeah, no worries, Dan.
climate change and how to avoid it isn't just something on the minds of global leaders, it's a huge topic of conversation at local level too. And nowhere is that more the case than in Sheffield, described by some as the outdoor city, where local Labour MP Olivia Blake has been gathering the views of residents in her constituency of Sheffield Hallam to form a Hallam Citizens Climate Manifesto, which she'll be presenting to 10 Downing Street today. Based on a series of local climate assemblies and with suggestions in areas including transport, agriculture and neighbourhoods, it's hoped it could be used to push for action locally and nationally ahead of COP26. So Olivia, welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast. Well, thank you for having me. So can you tell us a bit more about where the idea for this manifesto came from and some of the key ideas that have come out of it? Yeah, absolutely. So we really wanted to make sure that um, the voices of people in Hallam constituency would, would be heard through the COP26 process because um, it's such an important global meeting, but obviously the consequence of consequences of it will have huge ramifications to right down to the local level um, and I know that a lot of my constituents who had been getting in touch with me with concerns around the environment were really passionate to make sure that their voices were heard um, during this process so I decided to set up a number of citizen assembly type meetings where we had uh, people who had been either campaigning on the issue that we were discussing or experts who, uh, from economists right through to um, people involved in, in food, um, to discuss issues uh, around COP. So we had some really, really great discussions and we captured all those ideas and tried to summarise them in this manifesto. So the ideas in this manifesto are very much that of my constituents and not my own. Um, and we're really excited to be able to go uh, with a number of my constituents tomorrow to present this to number 10. Tell us a few of the some of the more interesting kind of ideas and suggestions that came out. I noticed a few things like uh, agriculture and food looking to back social and communal eating in the style of 1940s British restaurants, which I thought was quite quite interesting. What what other things came out of it that you know might contribute to the conversation? Yeah, so there was yeah great discussion about food actually, and I think food's such an important part of of this conversation. And you know, I think that through all these kind of issues, we discussed not not just how to get rid of carbon and and and, and decrease the amount of carbon in our economy, but also what social goods can also come out of it. So that was really exciting for me to hear from my constituents. And another great example was the local energy companies idea that people had that energy companies should be based locally and that they should be green energy, but also um, ideas like the 10 minute neighbourhoods and making sure that transport and people are able to access things that they need in their local communities and um, without having to travel and having a big carbon footprint. So there was lots of different exciting discussions that we had that had really fed into the, the proposals that are in this. And, you know, we had a lot on retrofitting, for example, which is obviously a hot topic this week because the government have announced their work on heat pumps. Um, but yet again, they're failing really to deliver on uh, on retrofitting of homes, which we really, really need to get on with. Um, and people felt very, very passionately about that um, in the conversations we had. It's clear you, you really wanted to get local people's views on board. And I think with, with COP26 on the horizon, there's going to be a lot of talk about what we can all do to avert a, a climate disaster. But do you think, is there a risk that if, if people at local level, like, you know, with your climate assemblies, aren't involved in the changes that we need to make that they won't ever get the buy-in 
sort of from the public that they need to make them a success? Absolutely. And so many people said during this process, I just want to know more. I want to know what I can be doing. I don't know why, why this is a problem. And, and, and we, this was kind of creating a space within our communities to have those discussions. So people who do know a bit more or who are specialists, but also people who have never really thought about these issues before and are just wanting to enter the conversation because they, you know, are clearly seeing on the news, the catastrophic weather events that we've been having, the, the wildfires that we've seen across the globe. And it's beginning to really feel real for people. And I think the kind of Greens job revolution that we need to see um, is is kind of a bit far-fetched at the moment for people. So it was really great to kind of have the conversation and get the kind of understanding about what actually that would mean and kind of what that would mean for our community and what we actually want to see in Sheffield Hallam from, you know, not only national government, but local government as well. And if there was one policy from the manifesto that you'd like Boris Johnson to take particular attention to or pay particular attention to, what what would that be? Oh, now you're asking. (laughs) I think, oh, you know, I haven't actually thought about that question. And there's just so many things in that. And I think the ingenuity and kind of like um, involvement that I've had, there's so many, so many good ideas in it. Um, But, you know, I'm I'm the Shadow Minister for Nature, so obviously very intrigued by the issue of biodiversity and and those ones that were in there. But, um, yeah, I think that public transport is another one of my passions and and making sure that we, we have that. So all the ones relating to those issues were certainly up there in my kind of top 10, I'd say. (laughs) I don't think I can narrow it down to one. I'm really interested also in what people in Sheffield Hallam had to say during these climate assemblies about the changes that they would be willing to make in their own lives. Because obviously, there's a lot of recommendations in there, as you say, about improving public transport and creating better neighbourhoods. But do you think when it comes down to it, that people locally would be willing to do things like give up their car in favour of public transport, or maybe even pay more in taxes to help fund some of the changes that need to be made? Like, are they? Did, did you get a sense that they're aware of the, the potential costs that will come with the transition that we, that we need to make? Well, I was really aware that um, this is going to cost a lot of money and then we need to have that discussion about what that would look like. So we had a whole session actually on finance and climate finance, what that means internationally, but also what that means locally. And, and uh, you know, the polluter pays kind of arguments we kind of went over and, and, and people kind of really engaged with that and thought that that was good. But um, people seemed very open, open to the financial side of it. And I think there's a recognition, certainly from the constituents who were, who were involved, that, you know, this is a big, big issue and one that w- is going to cost money. And they would like to see their taxes go on um, and, and more spending to go on these issues and tackling this issue. So I think that, um, you know, that there is an appetite to see this being prioritised by government. So I think government should take um, <laughs> take that take their lead really and, and look at this and make sure that you know in the uh, the the long awaited budget that we've got this week um, that that we see some of that prioritisation. You're Labour's shadow minister for nature, as you, as you've said, and you're going up to Glasgow on November the sixth for COP twenty six's Nature Day. Um, so first question: How how are you planning to get there? On the train, yeah, I tend to get the train everywhere. I don't actually drive, to be honest, Rob. So um, there's always going to be public transport for me so yeah I'll be hopping on the train. And what would you want to hear in terms of the issues being addressed 
by world leaders when it comes to nature your your portfolio yeah absolutely so biodiversity and you know is such a key part of how we're going to tackle the climate emergency they're dual emergencies the climate and nature emergencies that we've got but one um can harm or help the other so we need to make sure that we're working collectively through these ideas across the globe to tackle some big issues such as deforestation internationally um peatland restoration which is you know another issue which is relevant to Sheffield but also one that I'm very keen to see uh, the government do much much more on um, and also making sure that we're really talking about the risks to biodiversity that we're seeing um, we know that we're one of the most nature depleted countries and um, so we do have a lot to learn from other places but we also need to set ambitious targets to halt the decline and actually be really really positive about how we can get there and what we can be doing to use nature-based solutions to some of the issues that we'll be facing such as flooding and um, so you know making use of all the assets that we have um, in, in making our communities more robust to climate change that unfortunately is, is unavoidable, um, but also making sure that we're really, really pushing to make sure that we're keeping carbon locked in the ground, that the condition of soil is, is protected and, and health, health of soil is improved, that we have more trees being planted in the right places to really have the biggest impact, and that we're making sure that we're restoring uh, everything from our peatlands through to kelp and, and uh, seagrass to make sure that we're really, really trying to capture as much carbon as we can through nature-based solutions. Olivia Blake, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts like this one. See you next week. Chase, Eat, Sleep, Repeat, the podcast that chronicles the adventures, or indeed misadventures, of two new puppy parents. That's me, Hannah Jones. And me, Karen Price. We are the podcasting duo from teamdogs.co.uk, and each week we'll be speaking to a wide range of dog lovers from all walkies of life. From gritty ballrooms to farms, famous cobbles to ordinary homes, our wonderful guests offer us their top tips and stories about puppy parenthood. Interviews with... The Cannon Hall Farm Boys. I think you've got to be really consistent with them. You've got to give them loads of affection. You've got to remember that they're your pal, they're a lifelong pal, uh, and they respond better if they think a lot of you. Um, but, but equally, you've got to nip, nip bad habits in the bud. Um, you, you know, tough love. It's just like parenting, really, you know, and you don't need to be rough, you don't need to be mean, but you do need to be firm, consistent, and show them loads of love. Strictly's Shirley Ballas. They're babies. They're babies. And and I can only urge people out there who got the little puppies and the dogs during the pandemic. I really feel 
don't give up on them. Go to theteamdogs.co.uk, have a look, share with everybody else that's got puppy and dog teething problems. It's research, 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 and we certainly do a lot on this teamdogs.co.uk website to help people. Don't give up on them. Don't. Samia from Coronation Street. After, you know, a couple of years without having a dog, I said to Syl, it's, it's because we love them so much, because they're so amazing, that we get so sad when we have to say goodbye and we, and we should have have them in our lives because they bring us so much joy and they, they're such a part of the family. So, and, and also for the kids, it's so nice for them to have a dog around the house to grow, you know, grow up with, with having a dog and having a pet and, and knowing the responsibilities of looking after a pet and, you know, experiencing that. I think it's really important. Fetch, Chase, Eat, Sleep, Repeat takes a sideways look at how to thrive with the puppies in our lives. You'll hear all about our tiny terrors, my gorgeous Springer Spaniel Suggs, and my little cockapoo, Bryn. So sit down and find out whether we are barking mad about our puppies in our dog pod. Like poo bags, you should never leave home without us. Fetch, Chase, Eat, Sleep, Repeat is a laudable production from teamdogs.co.uk. It's available on all major podcasting platforms, including Apple and Spotify. Fetch, Chase, Eat, Sleep, Repeat, coming soon.